Hello, and welcome to A History of Jazz, a podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Arik Devins. Okay, so last time we took a closer look at the original Dixieland Jazz Band and the records they made in 1917. This time, we're going to look at what the rest of the industry was up to in 1917. This episode will be more of a grab bag type show, jumping from one topic to the next. And a lot of the artists we're going to talk about don't have a lot of historical detail, and many of them didn't do much after this year, so I'm going to tell you what I know, and I don't know that much in some cases. I do want to begin with one note. Many of the best jazz musicians of this era, the ones we still remember today, people like King Oliver, Kid Ory, Louis Armstrong, and Jelly Roll Morton, they were around at this time, but they weren't being recorded yet. They were mostly playing in venues and restaurants and clubs. It was mostly bands that already had a relationship with the recording industry that were making records. The original Dixieland Jazz Band was an overnight sensation, and the recording companies worked really quickly to try to cash in on the hype. What that meant is that they tended to prefer existing artists and had them make sort of jazz records. And I'll leave it up to the listener to determine how much of this music was actually jazz. So we'll hear all of the artists I mentioned in the beginning but not until they start making records a few years from now. Okay, so we're covering the year 1917, and there were some things that happened that year outside of the jazz world. President Woodrow Wilson began his second term in office. Jeanette Rankin of Montana became the first woman member of the United States House of Representatives. The first Pulitzer Prizes were awarded. The United States declared war on Germany and entered World War I. But most importantly for our purposes, 1917 was when Scott Joplin died on April 1st. As I mentioned in our first episode, the immediate predecessor to jazz was ragtime. And Scott Joplin was the most famous ragtime composer, and he wrote the biggest hit, The Maple Leaf Rag. Now, Joplin was born sometime around 1868 in Texas to a father who had been a slave and who played the violin, and a mother who sang and played the banjo, which is an instrument that was originally from West Africa. At some point, his father left the family, and his mother supported them by working as a domestic servant. Joplin, as a kid, would go with her to the jobs she worked and play the piano to entertain her. Eventually, he settled in Sedalia, Missouri, where he wrote most of his songs. As I mentioned, most ragtime came from Missouri. By 1916, he was working on an opera called Trimonisha. Unfortunately, he was committed to a state hospital for dementia, something called Paralytica Cerebral, which was brought on by syphilis. He died on April 1st at the age of 49, and Ragtime mostly died with him. His estate was executed by Wilbur Sweatman, who we'll be talking about later in this episode, and he was, for a long time, largely forgotten. Luckily, in the mid-1970s, his work and Ragtime in general had a bit of a resurgence, and one of his songs, The Entertainer, was used in the soundtrack for one of my favorite films, Paul Newman and Robert Redford's The Sting. So here now, from that film, is The Entertainer by Scott Joplin. ¶¶ 
So now we're going to talk about some of those other jazz bands that were recording in 1917. And the one we're going to start with has an incredibly unfortunate and offensive name. They were called Ciro's Club Coon Orchestra. Ciro's Club was a fashionable chain of restaurants from early 20th century Europe. The original owner who gave his name to the place was an Italian-born Egyptian who started off his working life as a head waiter in a restaurant in Monte Carlo, and that's where the first branch of Ciro's Club opened. Eventually, it was sold in 1911 to an English syndicate who planned to expand. They opened branches in Paris and Biarritz, and in 1915, they opened in London, even though this was the middle of World War I. For their band, they hired as the leader a Jamaican pianist named Dan Kildare, who had previously worked with perhaps the most famous early African-American band leader, James Reese Europe. The club closed in 1917 due to a combination of World War I and selling off-license alcohol, and was turned into a hospital for the rest of the war. They did reopen in 1919, but by that time Kildare had succumbed to alcohol and drug addictions, and in 1920 he killed his wife, her sister, and himself. The club itself continued almost until World War II. In March of 1917, their band recorded for Columbia, and so we can hear one of the first ever European jazz records with their song, Poor Butterfly. next artist we're going to talk about is a guy named Wilbur Sweatman, and our next episode will be entirely dedicated to him, so I'm not going to go into a ton of details now. What's important to note for this episode is that Sweatman had been recording since 1903, and that he had a famous vaudeville act where he played three clarinets at the same time. By 1917, he was already recording for several labels. A month after the success of the original Dixieland Jazz Band, he went into the studio for Pathé and recorded six songs. He was, therefore, the first African-American band leader to record a jazz song. And we're going to hear that song now with Wilbur Sweatman and his jazz band, Joe Turner Blues. Thank you. 
The next artist we're going to talk about is one of the most important pianists in early jazz history, and I'm talking about James P. Johnson. Along with Jelly Roll Morton, he bridged the gap between ragtime and early jazz, and we'll be talking about him a lot in future episodes. For this episode, we're going to listen to a piano roll he made in 1917. Piano rolls, which were in mass production from 1896 to 2008, were a way to automatically have a player piano play a song. So if you owned a player piano, you would buy piano rolls, install them, and that's how you would listen to music. It was one of the main ways that people heard music up until the dominance of the record player and eventually radio. What that means is that what we're going to hear now isn't a recording of James P. Johnson playing the song himself. It's just the song he composed being played by a piano. So here now, James P. Johnson's After Tonight. I know very little about the next band we're going to hear. They're called the Frisco Jazz Band, and they were formed in early 1917 in New York. But most of the members were from California, which appears to be why they were called the Frisco Jazz Band. They recorded nine tracks for Edison in 1917, and several of the members did go on to join more successful bands. There isn't that much to say about them, but I did find a description of the jazz phenomena included on one of their records that I really enjoyed and wanted to read for you all, and it goes like this. Just how the jazz band originated and where it came from is very hard to say. It hit New York during the winter of 1916-17, and once it got on Broadway, it stuck. It's there yet, and none of the great tango palaces can be considered complete without it. Frisco's jazz band is as jazzy as they come. It's the newest and smartest thing in modern music. If you've never danced to a jazz, you have a real treat in store. Make your debut with this record. You couldn't find a better one. Here now, Frisco Jazz Band with Johnson Jazz Blues. Thank you. 
The next artist I want to talk about is a guy named Earl Fuller. And Fuller is a great example of what I was talking about at the beginning of the show, existing artists who embrace the jazz trend. He was already the musical director of New York City's Rector's Restaurant on Broadway by 1913, and his Rector Novelty Orchestra played all kinds of traditional dance music. Around 1916, he hired clarinetist Ted Lewis's Clown Band, which was a circus band that played in clown outfits on the boardwalks of Coney Island. He hired the entire group, and they became Earl Fuller's famous jazz band. Now, Ted Lewis is someone we'll hear a lot more about in future episodes, but for right now, I just want to draw attention to the fact that this was months before the original Dixieland jazz band debuted at Ryzen Weber's Cafe. They were an immediate hit. The way it worked is that they would alternate sets with the novelty orchestra because dancers weren't quite ready for the fast pace of the jazz music. There is some evidence that the development of this band was at least strongly encouraged by the Victor Recording Company. As I mentioned last time, the original Dixieland jazz band didn't record with Victor for over a year due to the lawsuit over the rights to Livery Stable Blues. Having Earl Fuller's band allowed Victor to release more jazz records and take advantage of the new intense popularity for the music. The band therefore recorded frequently in 1917 and 1918. But when Prohibition happened in 1919, Rector's, their home restaurant, closed its doors. After recording for the final time with his jazz band, Fuller went on a coast-to-coast tour of vaudeville houses. He did eventually come back to New York, but he didn't restart his jazz band. Instead, he continued recording with his traditional dance band, but even that came to an end by 1921. He briefly had a music production company, but by 1928, he had moved to Cincinnati and was working as a real estate agent. He died of a heart attack in Ohio in 1947. He's mostly forgotten today, but he was an important piece of the early success of jazz music, and we can hear some of that now in his song, Slippery Hank. last artist I want to talk about today is W.C. Handy. Now, Handy's story is a long and interesting one, but it's probably really more appropriate for a history of the blues rather than of jazz. In fact, he's often called the father of the blues. Now, he didn't create blues, of course, but he was one of the first to popularize it nationally. He was born in a log cabin in Alabama in 1873 to a father who believed musical instruments were tools of the devil, so he had to buy his first instruments secretly, which he paid for by selling his own soap that he made from berries and nuts. By 1902, he was traveling around Mississippi and listening to various types of blues, anything he could get his hands on. And by 1909, he was living in Memphis, had formed a band, and that's where he wrote his famous Memphis Blues, which was the first song to introduce the 12-bar blues format. 
the most common blues format, even until today. By 1917, when the original Dixieland Jazz Band brought jazz to the masses, he was already a huge success. And he was initially very unimpressed with jazz. But many of the early jazz bands used his compositions as standards. By the end of that year, he did agree to have his Orchestra of Memphis record a couple of jazz songs, and he therefore became the second African-American band leader to record a jazz record. He continued to be a major force in the recording industry for many years to come, but, but eventually the rise of blues singers overshadowed him. In 1943, he became blind when he fell off a subway platform, but he lived until 1958 when he died of pneumonia. His songs are some of the most recorded in jazz history, so we'll definitely be hearing more of them as we go along. But right now, let's hear one from the man himself, W.C. Handy's That Jazz Dance. close this time with the other track from that record. And the reason is because it's a cover of Livery Stable Blues by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. And I want you to hear how different it sounds compared to the original. As the show goes on, we will be hearing many, many variations on the same songs. And this is an early opportunity to see a little bit how that works. So here it is, W.C. Handy with Livery Stable Blues. So that wraps up our discussion of 1917, the first year of jazz recording. Next time we'll move into 1918 with an episode all about Wilbur Sweatman. See you then. You can follow along with the show on Twitter at JazzHistoryPod or check out the website at AHistoryOfJazz.com. Every episode I'll be including a link to a Spotify playlist of all the songs we heard. 
You can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or wherever great podcasts can be found. If you want to participate, please leave a rating or a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Tiger, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.